Hello, everyone. Welcome to another Mangum Talks TV. I am Lee. I am joined by Spencer. Spencer, say hey to the people. Hey, everybody. Spencer, we are on episode four of HBO's Chernobyl. How you doing? You hanging in there? I'm doing great. Uh, it, which is rough to say about a show that could be as brutal as this, but man, it is such a high quality show to rewatch. I know. It's kind of hard for me. Like uh, I try to figure out how to talk about the show in a way that doesn't make me sound like a fucking terrible person because i'm like oh it's awesome you have to watch it it's amazing and then people start watching it it's like people like burning like you know melting from the inside yeah just oh the concentrated human suffering it's just so incredible (laughs) well we are on episode four titled the happiness of all mankind and we are very clearly in the not dealing with the immediate issue right? right not dealing with the fire from the explosion or whatever now they're it's sort of a longer game of trying to get this entire area, uh, the exclusion zone, into some sort of um, non-dangerous state, right? Yeah, as Legosoff said in the last episode, the long war has begun, and we can see the scale of the war they're having to fight to make to make to bring a victory. Yeah, I I totally see that, and this episode is really framed around that long war. Uh, before we get going, I just want to shout out to everybody: uh, go listen to Mangum Reads because they're doing Harry Potter, and it's amazing. <laughs> Appreciate appreciate the reference. Uh, yeah, that's been that's been a quite a blast for us to record so far. I'm, I, me knowing nothing about the technical side of these podcasts, I have no idea when they're being posted. But yeah, they'll be fun when they are. Yeah, that's true. Um, BJ is really hoarding his episodes of Mangum Reads, so he's got like three just in the hopper. Uh, only other thing I'll say on housekeeping is that we now are on a steady. We're, we're professionalizing Spencer. Oh, we are indeed. on a steady schedule of every Friday about mid afternoon. We post a new whiskey on the weekends. Yeah, we're at incredibly professional production where my laptop is sitting on the side of a bed in the dark because I can't have the overhead light run at the same time as the as the electrical outlet next to me. <laughs> well, let us behind the curtain there, Spencer. Well, I'm at a very fancy desk with a very fancy microphone. I'm glad at least one of us is representing. <laughs> cool. All right, you want to get in a recap? Oh, yeah. All right, we start with an older lady, and she's milking a cow. Um, Pip is behind her, um, and he's telling her she needs to evacuate. That's Pip from Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. She's not having it. She says she's 82. She's lived there her whole life. What do I care about safe? I have a job. Don't cause trouble, he says. This is a, you know very much a, a Soviet mentality. Um, mm-hmm. Look, hey, they told me to take you out of here. I have to take you out of here, right? That's how this whole society works. That's the only conversation we need to have right now. She says he's not the first soldier to stand there with a gun. She was around for the revolution, the Bolsheviks. Then there was Stalin. She had family die. They told her to leave. Then the Great War. I think she's referencing World War II here. Mm-hmm. Um, her brothers never came home quote my brothers never came home but I stayed and I'm still here after all that I have seen so I should leave now because of something I cannot see at all no so this is you know this is probably just representative of many 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 people who had this sort of initial reaction to the evacuation order like I don't see anything I don't feel anything this is stupid right yeah, I've endured far worse than something that you're now saying will kill me at some point in the future that I cannot be seen with my eye. Yeah, but, so then the soldier... Oh, you got anything? Yeah, just a reference to the Great War. As far as I know, in Russia, the World War II is still called the Great Patriotic War. So that just seems to be the term they have for it. Well, in their defense, that's the one time they were on the right side of history. Oh, dude, come on. We probably have Russian listeners. Let's, let's give them some greater hope than that. <laughs> I hope we don't have any Russian listeners. <laughs> um, so the soldier dumps her milk out. He clearly doesn't want to harm her, but he's trying to get her and to hurry up. Um, and he's getting outside pressure too, because when he dumps the milk out, there's a horn that honks and he, he asks for more time. 
from the people who were there. She just picks up the, the, the pail and starts milking the cow again. So he stands over her. He cocks his gun. I think you're meant to think he's going to shoot her. He shoots the cow. And this is an interesting scene because they keep playing on, I think, the West idea of how cruel the Soviets were. Because I, of course, assumed the soldier was going to shoot her. Right. Because I have it in my head that the Soviets were cruel, that they there was no real rule of law. There was no real justice. It was just the state kind of ran roughshod over, over everybody. And they keep having these scenes where they set you up to sort of think that. And it subverts your expectations because he, did, he really doesn't want to kill this lady. He wants her to just leave. So he shoots the cow, and presumably that works. It's interesting. As you said, most of our concept of the Soviet Union seems to be very much built in the Stalinist era, which was a horrible period of time. But we're now 30 years after that when this is when, when this is being set. This is under the much more, you know, I'll refer to it as warm and fuzzy uh, Gorbachev era. And it, <laughs> it, it is interesting to see a more complete picture of the Soviet Union done through this show. And, you know, in terms of killing the cow, he was probably under orders to start liquidating all the local animals anyway. So he's just expediting the process. Yeah, yeah, agreed. So we have Mangum Talks uh, t-shirts. If anybody's interested, uh, just go to mangumtalks.com, upper right-hand corner, contact us, let us know, we can get you one. Um, but I think we need a new Mangum Talks t-shirt. I think we need, in quotes, the warm and fuzzy Gorbachev era. The moment I said that, I'm like, oh, crap, this is going to be a thing. It's, it's going to be like the mentor thing on, on, on Mangum Reads here in a heartbeat. I know this. That or the campfire thing on Whiskey uh, on the Weekend. Uh, why am I doing all of this? <laughs> I don't know. You're the hardest working man in podcasts. Um, we cut to Kiev, Ukrainian USSR. This is August 1986, four months after the explosion. Um, for those wondering, I was one year, one month old. Uh, Ludmilla is walking into an apartment. She's very visibly pregnant. Spencer, is this like her new apartment? Like she's been relocated? That was my assumption, yeah, that all the members of the uh, relocated communities have been found new, very obviously state-constructed homes. Yeah, shout out to the warm and fuzzy Gorbachev era. Like, they actually did, you know, displace folks. They actually took, anybody who was under mandatory evacuation orders, they did give them a new place to live. Mm-hmm. I mean, so they, it, were, they were pretty good about that. As we'll discuss in my little uh, historical spiel at the end of this, it's this point in favor of the Gorbachev era that they even let the local people know that they should leave. Yeah, and, and with an eye to the segment that we have after the recap, after I award Best Line, which is Spencer's Wikipedia Spiral of the Week, I'm under strict orders by our fans to not rush you. I got I got some serious blowback. Really? rushing you. Oh, yeah, people didn't like that. Oh, you're you're popular, Spencer. Oh, yeah, you're popular. You're way okay. more popular than I am. <laughs> well, we all know that's <laughs> not true, but I appreciate the polite lie. <laughs> then we cut to basically like a, it looks to me like a sort of um, montage of uh folks I, I guess these are the beginning of the liquidators we're, we'll get into the liquidators later but uh basically what we see is some men in hazmat gear checking radiation levels in a field someone has a reading of 15 runkin jesus um we see a bicycle that is clearly super radioactive uh we hear then see a helicopter go by and it looks to be spraying something um anything you want to say about this scene no, I mean, it's an interesting scene because this is one of many we see over the course of this episode that have very little dialogue other than just reading out radiation readings as you just start to see the scale of the operation they have to conduct to determine not even what they need to do about certain locations, but even find what areas are, even, are dangerous and have to have something done about them. The idea that you have to essentially line an area of 
dozens of square miles with soldiers and just have them walk slowly across it to make readings of every single location. Oh, the scale and scope and cost of this is horrifying. Yeah, they, they asked for and got 750 people, 750,000 people to, to act as liquidators. And that reading of 15 Runkin, by the way, we can cut back to the 3.6 Runkin that was initially reported after the Chernobyl disaster mm-hmm. or the, the, the core blew up. That's, you know, Legosoft said it was, I think, 500 chest x-rays. Mm-hmm. Something like that. So even standing in that field, that's 1,500 chest x-rays. So, oof. <sighs> yeah, we cut to Pripyat, which is in the exclusion zone. Obviously, Legosoft is in a room smoking a cig. Uh, the phone rings. As everyone on this show does. He, man, Legosoft does smoke a lot. Um, he says, I'll meet him there. And we see Boris and Legosoft meeting with Nikolai Tarkanov, who is the chief supervisor of the cleanup operation of Chernobyl. Mm-hmm. Um, he says it's embarrassing that the core is still exposed. He asks why. Legosoft explains that there are pieces of the core. So this is the, the graphite. Literally exploded and now on top of the building. And getting near it will kill you. So they aren't able to build anything around the exposed reactor. It's just, it's open because even getting on this um, roof is is so dangerous that they can't do it. Yeah, I mean, to put, in, put a point of comparison, I think they say for two of the roofs, it's 1,000 rodigan per hour. Another roof is 2,000. And then this worst roof, the roof that they can't even send little, that they have no plan for, is 12,000. If you remember, they said that the open core was 15. Uh, so this is, is, as they put it, the single most dangerous place on the planet. Yeah, Boris says that. Um, so basically they gave names to these levels, which I mm. thought was interesting. Uh, Katya, which is, like you said, 1,000 Runkin per hour. Two hours exposure is fatal. Uh, Nina, which 2,000 Runkin per hour. One hour is fatal. And then Marsha, 12,000 Runkin. If you were to stand there in full protective gear, this is Legosoft, head to toe for two minutes, your life expectancy would be cut in half. Three minutes, you're dead within months. Even the moon rovers won't work there. The particles literally shred the circuits and microchips apart. <laughs> I That's on my list of best lines right there. because It just really, again, effectively expresses how horrifying this is. That this is something that our basic levels of technology, as he puts it, puts it, anything more complicated than a light switch will be destroyed by this location. Yeah, it's this interesting. This is an eldritch space. Yeah, it's interesting to me that, that Legasov here is really stressing under no circumstances can we put men up there. No humans can go there. And that lasts for what, about 25 minutes? Well, it lasts until they don't have another viable alternative. Yeah, so they're right now Legasov and Boris are, are pitching using moon rovers. Basically just radioactive, or radioactive, uh, like a handheld, um, you know, these machines that will effectively just dump all of the, the graphite and the debris that's up there uh, into the core Mm -hmm. and boris has a great line about this we couldn't put a man on the moon at least we can keep a man off a roof (laughs) (laughs) that's a wonderful line that is yeah it's pretty good um uh, tarkanov says okay what do we do and boris says that's what they wanted to ask him and this is specifically around marcia because they're saying that with katya and nina um they can use these moon rovers but marcia they can't because it's just going to just destroy the the um, the piece of equipment as soon as it gets there. And they're actually kind of coming to this general, who's a real person, I think, Dark on off. I'm looking up at Mao as I'm talking to you, and just yeah, saying, we don't have a solution to this. We need to ask you, do you have any ideas right now? Yeah, and you kind of get the sense that it was inevitable what was going to have to happen, which is people are going to have to go up there. 
So we cut to a shot of buses with young men apparently going into the exclusion zone. One young guy named Pavel, a Grimov, uh, sees someone vomiting as they approach what looks like a camp. That's a that's a really bad sign. Somebody's just out there on their knees. Yeah, that, 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 that's both a bad look for initial recruits and also just shows how much this operation is still only vaguely getting under control and underway, that they're not sheltering that away from the entrance area. Well, I think there's a the little hezzy hey, a little misdirection, because there's also so much booze in this camp. Yeah, it's true. That who knows? <laughs> Pavel it's might just true. be thinking the guy's hammered. <laughs> Hell, he um, might just be hammered, other than he's presently in a radiation suit at the time that he's vomiting. But, you know, how could we say for sure? In the very Soviet sequence here, we see men dancing and drinking with their shirt off, uh, people shitting, and then people burning wooden crates. <laughs> Three very standard Soviet things right there. We know where we are in the world. So these are the Soviet liquidators. Spencer, anything you want to say about the liquidators? I can provide a little historical context if you don't have it. Start off, please. Yes, yeah, so but this was about, you know, the show gets the number right, about 750,000 people. These were military and civilian. So they maxed out the military and then they actually brought civilians in. This comes up later when Pavel meets a guy named Bacho. And the, these guys, I mean, without the liquidators' effort, it would still be a continental disaster mm-hmm. to this day. And what they did is, I mean, they went in, they killed animals. They removed top layers of earth and buried it within itself. They cleared all trees and vegetation. They burned things. I mean, they it was a massive, massive amount of work. And many, many of these liquidators died as a result of the work they did. The Soviets report zero deaths, by the way, of liquidators. Just like to point that out. Um, but that's obviously not true. A lot of them did die. Um, so we talked a lot about the the divers and how these were were legit heroes. I think that you you got to look at the liquidators and put them in that that same bundle, right, or in that same category. That that it was heroic efforts they were doing because they were going into areas that were highly highly radioactive, putting their life on the line. But it had to be done in order to get to some level of containment or control of the situation. I yeah, no doubt. I mean, it's. We cannot summarize, we cannot minimize the human cost and the human effort that went into making this a non-ongoing human a disaster of a scale we can scarcely imagine. I mean, just look at the physical structure. Up until recent years, the building they built around, the sarcophagus, as it's called, they literally buried this in the world so as to protect us from it in terms of the uh, actual open reactor itself. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I think that the show does a good job of showing you that the Soviets, while they fucked up royally to have this thing happen to begin with um a lot a lot of people both military and civilian put their necks out to try to contain it it's it's a conversation you and i keep having of just can you imagine taking one third of the entire united states military and putting them on this kind of project for who knows how many years into the future to try to make it right again i i i still just am baffled at the scale necessary to do this and whether we as a nation could have under those circumstances well, I, I mean, I, I blame your your lot um, because I think that everything would have gotten <laughs> Go so, everything would have gotten so damn litigious. Like, I mean, uh, think about true. how everybody's suing everybody because they're getting cancer. Yeah, yeah, um, the, the 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 curse and the strain of individual rights—it's just so difficult. Yeah, well, I mean, on a, I think you have to have that conversation if you, you start do? to say how how would America deal with this? Because I think that the Soviets, one of the reasons they were able to deal with it is they had such a top-down structure in their society. They said, nope. You need 750,000 people, 
we're going to get you 750,000 people. Yeah. Whatever is necessary, it will be done. This is the cost our generation has to pay. Yeah. Pavel is walking through the camp. He gets to tent 181. That's that great Soviet naming for you again, Spencer. <laughs> 181. Hospital 6. There's no ambiguity here. You know what it is. Yeah. He's greeted by a young Soviet and Bacho. Bacho is a Georgian. Uh, Georgian. Uh, Georgian. Georgian. Um, soldier and Soviet Afghan war veteran. Um Bacho offers Pavel a drink, says it's free, and Pavel says, that's nah, a little early for me. Um, but Bacho seems a little annoyed by that. <laughs> Smart of the Soviets to give free alcohol to all the liquidators, though. I think that was a, was a solid move. Really good call. What makes me curious, though, is that is this a unique thing for the fact that they are liquidators, or is this just a like you know, the rum ration continuing through the modern Soviet military kind of thing? I think it was particularly for the liquidators. That was like part of their payment. Mm-hmm was they got to drink for free. Now, my question is, I don't see so much as a cup of water in this whole thing. <laughs> this is true. I mean, is everybody just going to die of dehydration in like a week? <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, you see the scene later on of even when uh, Pavel's out on mission and he's drinking from his canteen, he visibly flinches when he drinks from his canteen. So it's like, even that is full of vodka right now. <laughs> yes, it is. Nobody's got any water, but there's, there's vodka for days. Um, Bacho gets up, he greets Pavel. And it's clear that Bacho is in charge of this little operation. Um, Bacho asks Pavel if he's an Afghan veteran. <laughs> and Pavel explains he's not even in the military. And Bacho very astutely comments they're running out of men. Mm-hmm. That is actually true because they called up the military first. When they ran out of the military, that's when they started, in effect, a draft of civilians to go work as liquidators. And we don't see them in the, in the course of this. But um, from what I know, one of the primary teams they sent out in terms of doing the operation we're going to see these guys engaged in were professional civilian hunters that they basically drafted into a kind of military unit for these purposes. So, yeah, it was a full-on muster was occurring to make this situation work. Yep. Uh, Bacho then starts walking Pavel around the camp. Uh, he explains that some men dig up the ground, others cut down trees, others evacuate people. Pavel asks about another group in Bacho. I love Bacho, by the way. He says, I don't know them. Fuck them. <laughs> Bacho's the man. Bacho is a really good boss. He's the kind of, you know, manager above you you really want to have. He immediately has this guy's back for no other reason than he is, he is mine, he is under my command. He takes the time to show him around the camp. He holds his hand very carefully through what otherwise was a, up through a process he otherwise just could have mocked him in, that he has no military experience, he's never fired a gun. He never makes fun of him for any of that. He just takes the time to teach him. He's brusque, he's a jerk at times, but he's a really good boss to have. I completely agree. Um, Bacho walks up to some random guy and asks for an egg basket, which is hilarious, which <laughs> yeah, that's, that's just really term. a, a metal, medical, metal protector for your genitals. And he, he proactively, to your point, he said, warns the guy not to puck, fuck with Pavel. He says, he's, he's one of mine. He's with me. Mm-hmm. Um, and he gives him this metal genital protector, tells him to put it on. Now? No, no. You can wait until the radiation gives you a cunt. <laughs> And I like we find out later that they've gotten these from literally tearing them out of the other still functional reactors. Yeah, and Pavel pull, pulls his pants down and Bacho explains that it goes on over his clothes. Um, but interesting to me here that the the genital protectors, the Soviets aren't even giving them to the liquidators. I guess yeah. they don't have them. The liquidators are just having to cook them up and, and to your point, like scalvage 
metal to to try to create these things? No, I mean, we see them use, we see some teams using radiation suits, and we see this group later having what appear to be protective boots. But that's it. I mean, it's just again, they don't they probably don't have anywhere near a percentage of that equipment in the entire Soviet Union, much less for seven hundred fifty thousand people. No, yeah, it's it's true. It's probably just had a supply chain issue. Um, can, can I say one thing I, re- I actually really like about the casting of this? Yeah, um, far away. One thing that we often see when we're having depicted the Soviet Union is that everyone is Russian. That everyone is just very mono-ethnic, same language, same culture, same background, everything else. It's a very just a singular entity. This team is delightful and it's showing just how diverse the Soviet Union was at the period. Each of these three guys come from an entirely different Soviet republic. You've got an Armenian, you've got a Georgian, you've got... You know, they don't actually say where Pavel is from, but they purposely cast a guy that looks like he has vaguely kind of um, East Asian or, Middle, or, or uh, Asian Asiatic features. Uh, he's, not, he's actually Irish in terms of the actor, but, you know, it's an effective casting. And it's, it's an interesting thing to point out that this is a very, very ethnically, racially, diver- religiously diverse uh, nation. And they're having to draw people from all parts of it to fix this problem. And remember, this is also not occurring in Russia in terms of where they are. We're in Ukraine and Belarus. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. <clears throat> and I, I, I like, yeah, I, I would have pointed that out. I think that the casting, especially of Bacho, shows you they're not all like Dolph Lundgren, right? They're not all like six foot six, you know, white guys with shock white hair. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bacho explains that their job is to kill the animals, which are radioactive. Um, this is some really sad shit, Spencer. Um, we're getting into some dark stuff. Yeah, of all of all the jobs you could have as part of the liquid um, among the liquidators, where would this one be on your ranking list in terms of options? Presumably above roof work. I don't like to walk over grates in the sidewalk, so pretty much all of these are fucking on my shit list because there's radioactivity near it. But I would say this is pretty low on my list. I mean, that would be a, a tough thing to do and you're still exposed to a lot of you know radioactivity it's not like this is a, a particularly safe job so no, it's it, it's da- just as dangerous as, as many of the jobs but it's a real fucking bummer yeah i mean for purely selfish reasons i might pick this one above at doing literal so you could shoot dogs no that is not exactly <laughs> what i was going with about this i don't do that in my spare time for kicks i was suggesting that maybe this has a step above roof liquidation work but who am i to say yeah, no, it, well, I don't know. It just depends on how long they keep you out there. Um, well, but anyway. we, don't, we don't see when, when these, how, the, how often these guys are rotated or pulled, or if they're even rotated at all. Right. So uh, he says it's easy. They're mostly pets. They run right up to you. Great. <laughs> uh, then they load the bodies on a truck, dump them in a pit, bury them in concrete. Then we drink <laughs> as much vodka as we want, plus a thousand rubles. A thousand rubles, not bad. Yeah, not bad um, at all. They go off to get Pavel a gun. Um, then we cut to Lomonosov Moscow University Library. Yulana is there, presumably researching why the hell pressing the button, the AZ-5 button, would, which drops the control rods into the core, would cause the core to explode. Mm-hmm. She goes up to a receptionist and asks for a list of documents. They are permission only. So I guess this is like some restricted reading list or something? Yeah, that's my guess. She explains she's working for the, quote, Central Committee. Seems a little generic. But again, but then again, it's the Soviet <laughs> naming <laughs> conventions. I, I think the Central Committee is like the immediate advisors to the premier. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's a big deal, but it's just such a lackluster name for it. Central Committee. Uh, it, maybe it has more flourish in the Russian language. Yeah, sure. Um, the receptionist calls someone, uh, opens a door and a man walks in. The guy looks at the list, walks out, comes back with the list, and it looks like he scratched everything out but one. And says she can have that one. 
and as the as the librarian leaves, she's come you. I, I don't know, half sarcastically, just looks at him and says, thank you, comrade. Just grab yeah. him. <laughs> um, yeah, so, I mean, she's on the case. Yolanda's on the case. And we cut to the liquidators, and the guys are just moving Earth. Helicopter flies over, um, dropping some sort of chemical. Men are wasting, uh, washing pavement, uh, pavement uh, in hazmat suits. And ominous music is playing, obviously, because they're neo-radioactivity. Um, it, one of the reasons they were dropping those chemicals from helicopter, as far as I know, is they were having to deal with the fact that uh, dust moves. <laughs> Wind can blow radioactive dust wherever it wants to go. Yep. And so they had to add some extra chemicals to the top layer of the soil just to keep it to the ground and not be blown about by the winds, because that would yeah. have been a nightmare to try to fix. Basically dumping something that weighs down that dust. Yeah. Um, so it just doesn't, you know, go go crazy. Uh, so yeah, this this liquidator montage I think is meant to give you a sense of just all the things they had to do. Again, trying to show oh, yeah. you the scale of the work ahead of them. Uh, we see the graphite chunks on the ceiling, and we cut to Tarkanov with some operators in front of monitors. Uh, I believe this is where they're trying to use the moon rovers. I will offer this as quite possibly the most heartwarming, mo- one of the most heartwarming moments of the course of the show. Just to yeah. see how utterly giddy they are to have a solution, to have a problem that they can fix. Yeah, uh, they're really good. Little Abbott and Costello routine here with Boris and Legasov. Boris says to think, to think, as if we put on the moon. And Legasov says, well, not that one. <laughs> I Boris, know. I, I know not that one. These guys are clearly uh, friends, but they're clearly very different people. They are. But they. I, I love the, the, the sort of how the two actors, Skarsgård and who, who plays Legasov? Oh, I know this. Um, he, keep he played, talking, I'll look it up right he now. He played King George in The Crown on Netflix. Um, but anyway, those two actors have done a really good job of showing a developing, burdening friendship. Uh, budding friendship, right? J- Jared uh, Harris. Jared Harris. Jared Harris, yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, Turkanov explains that they have this one and they can build two more. That should cover Nina and Katya. Uh, Boris and Masha. Uh, Turkanov explains that the Central Committee may have found something. It's German. West German, and quote, as you can imagine, that wasn't an easy conversation to have. <laughs> uh, I, I, some sort of police vehicle or something. I like, too, that Legasov's first question is, we found something from the outside. American? And Karnoff just starts laughing. Of course not. Well, Legasov is also probably aware that the Americans do have technology that could potentially help. They're probably the most likely. Like, all things being equal. Get yeah. rid of all the socioeconomic, political stuff. Um, you'd probably want to go to the Americans first. So I think Legasov has thrown this out there multiple times, and I mm-hmm. think it's a it's a sort of a nod to the fact that folks in the scientific community are probably really frustrated that you can't just go get the best technology out there. But Dukarnov is very much aware of the political situation that, no, 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 it's not even something we'd ever inquire into. They make clear in a later conversation this episode. Yeah, so they're ready to move the rover, and Spencer, it starts moving. <laughs> and and Legasov gets really happy. He's smiling, he's kind of bobbing up and down. This from Boris. Larry, what's that? smile and they both laugh uh, and they kind of embrace it it's a great moment um because again they to your point it's as heartwarming as the show's going to get because these people who have you know obviously now we know have given their life they're, it's going to be a s- slow process but they're going to die eventually um trying to contain this thing finally have a solution or what appears to be a solution yeah it, it's really heartwarming to watch it say i think this is one of maybe two smiles we get from Legasov over the course of this entire show and so watching them in that very dank, dark little room that they're apparently doing this in. I'm not sure why they've had to turn off all the lights to make this work. Uh, <laughs> it, it really is nice to see them just hold, uh, give each other a hug and dan- almost dance in their place as they're watching 
a successful operation begin. Yep. Cut to Dyatlov. Uh, he seems to be on the men. Dyatlov looking better. Uh, though, though he has stark white hair where once was a bushy black. Yeah. Uh, but he, he does look to be better. Smoking a cigarette, of course. Yulana walks in and comments about how he looks better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Dyatlov immediately tells her to leave. No, leave. Uh, she says she needs his help. Says uh, Akimov initiated AZ5. AZ5 is how she pronounces it. Dyatlov says he didn't order that. Toptonov called it out. Akimov pressed it. Quote, it was the only good decision they made. Incompetent morons. <laughs> Dyatlov such is a, a dick. He's a real purebred asshole. Yeah. This guy. He is full-fledged, full-blooded fucking dick. It's impressive to see how much of a jerk this guy is. Just now, even now, afterwards, he's going to get the bullet anyway. He knows he's going to be blamed. Why not make some effort to try to help fix this situation? But no, it is not in this person to be human. He just seems like the type of guy, if you're working retail, you don't want to come into your store. Oh, God. Or can, just, you, met, can yeah. you imagine working under this guy? as, he, as the, the hell the reactor workers went through bef- even before this incident. Yeah, he's a he's a jerk. She confirm. Uh, she asked him to confirm that the reactor exploded after they attempted to shut it down. Dyatlov says, "How do I know it exploded?" Dude's a bit behind the curve here, <laughs> or uh, just in still active denial. She shows him a picture of the exposed reactor. He even at this he can't argue that. I mean, now he's got visual proof that yes, it did explode. She said she found something in the archives, notes about RBMK reactors under extreme conditions. However, the authors' names had been removed and two pages had been taken out. And Dyatlov is basically, like, I don't give a fuck. Like, the state has to protect his secrets. Would you agree? Like, he, he's really trying to not engage with her. But she explains they made a mistake. They didn't redact the table of contents. Ooh. Mm-hmm. looks at it. The missing pages are about a positive void coefficient in AZ5. Yulana's piecing this together. She is on the case. I got to tell you, Spencer, she is not somebody you want looking into your shit. Oh, no. She's a bulldog about this kind of thing. Yeah, like, like, let's say you weren't the, the great boyfriend that you are. Let's say... <laughs> Where are you going with this? Go on. Let's say, Spencer, we're in an alternate timeline here, and you are you have a second life. You have a... You're a womanizer. Um, you don't want your girlfriend to be friends with Yulana. That's what I'm saying here. She's going she's gonna to expose you. <laughs> if she had the slightest hint of indiscretion, it would be hounded down. <laughs> yep. Uh, he gets defensive, and she says she's not there to blame him. She explains that uh, she's his best chance to avoid a bullet. I think she's actually very, very right about that, because if she can figure out why it happened and can actually lay blame on something or someone else, that mm-hmm. is probably one of the best ways to stop Dyatlov from being scapegoated. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, he says, do you think the right question will get you the truth? There is no truth. Ask the bosses whatever you want. You'll get the lie, and I will get the bullet. Great line. Yeah. That's a great I, line. I nominate that for best line of the episode, obviously. And he just, at the end, he just kind of just looks at it. He, he does actually look at it for a second. This kind of goes, eh, void coefficients have nothing to do with ace at five. There you go. Leave. Yeah. Cut to the liquidators. Uh, Bacho and Pavel are hunting animals. They get their guns. They're all wearing the genital protection. Uh, and Pavel clearly doesn't know how to load his gun. This is to your point. Bacho notices and helps him. Mm-hmm. Did not make fun of him, cast judgment, and clearly has established that in this group, you don't make fun of each other because the other guy that's there notices it and doesn't say anything. Mm-hmm. So it's, it, it, it's weird because Bacho is clearly a hard, hard man, but 
you know, it's a supportive sort of managerial style. I was really expecting this to be a lot more tropey in terms of the relationship they went with, that he's the veteran soldier that mocks the young recruit and eventually beats him into action. That's not that at all. This is a veteran soldier who's used to training new soldiers under his command, and he just immediately falls into that role and takes the time to get this guy to both understand his job and understand what's expected of him as a soldier. And it's, it's nice to see that, even if it's doing something as horrific as this. Yeah, and you're describing exactly what I referenced earlier in the pod, which is they subvert your expectations about how the Soviets operate and mm-hmm. how they treat each other. Um, then he, Baccio gives him this line, which is great. I only have two rules. One, don't point this gun at me. That's easy, right? You can point it at this piece of shit. I don't give a fuck. It's some other dude. <laughs> Never me. <laughs> two, if you hit an animal and it doesn't die, keep shooting until it does. Don't let them suffer or I'll kill you. Understand? Great rule, Baccio. If you have to do this, you can't let the animal suffer. You absolutely cannot do that. And and he pushes it, too. He's just like, the guy just kind of shrugs. Oh, yeah, sure, sure. Understand? No, I mean it. I've killed a lot of people. And just walks away. And the guy's like, all right, I understand the scale of this role now. He's not kidding. Um, they go off to hunt. Ugh. Um, Bacho explains that once they start shooting, the animals will run inside uh, where they feel safe. Then they'll have to go door to door. Bacho and his sidekick start shooting. And Pavel is frozen. And I, 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 it's a it's a terrible scene because you know they just whistle and the dogs come excitedly. They want somebody to come to. They're lost. They're confused. They were abandoned. They don't know why, and they're charging right into their own firing squad. Is that level uh, some some empathy for dogs? I'll go with living things. Maybe it's more effective in my mind if I don't associate it with dogs. Just to keep <laughs> the stereotype you want to put on me, but you know. <laughs> Uh, it, it looks like they only really have the domesticated pets are really just dogs and cats. Yeah. That's all I'm seeing. Um, Pavel is frozen uh, and Bacho says, do your job. They tell Pavel to go door to door. Pavel's walking around slowly, uh, very slowly, I may add, <laughs> and yeah. comes upon a dog. He tries to shoo it away and it doesn't go and he shoots it. And the dog doesn't die. And... The, the shot is a really good shot here because we see Pavel shooting the dog through the doorway in the household. Yeah. Um, and we don't know if the dog dies right away. And then we cut and we see the dog. He's not dead. Pavel freaks out and freezes. He's and the dog is suffering and whimpering. Yeah. Um, Pavel tries to comfort it. And here's a shot. It's Bacho who kills it. Don't let them suffer, he says <laughs> again. Grabs like, dude, him. I told you. This was like rule number two of only two rules. Um, and he says, you're dragging that to the truck. Yeah, but even then, even as he's confronting him to this, he doesn't abuse him in any sense of the word. It's still just, I get you're new, but don't do this again. It's a yep. clear rule, but it's not um, like an unnecessarily hostile one. I, again, I love that they're subverting our expectations about these guys interacting. So, Spencer, do you think you could have adhered to this rule right away? Uh, like if, you, if you're Pavel and you shoot the dog and the dog goes down whimpering, do you really think you could have, boom, snap, shot it again? Uh, if I saw it was still alive, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think so too. I, I would, I don't think I would hesitate there just because I would have been horrified enough to see, to, to see that it's still alive. I think I would have probably unloaded a clip just to be absolutely certain it's dead with the first one I was shooting. Yeah. See, that's the, the, the difference, uh, that I have with Pavel's character is that to me, the hardest shot would be the first one. Yeah. The second one would be easy for me. Mm-hmm. Um, it looked like it's the inverse for Pavel. Pavel, the first shot he was able to do, the second one he froze. And this is interesting because this is really the subject of the next conversation that they have. So they go to eat lunch and here is the 
quintessential Soviet meal. Sausage and vodka. Sausage being eaten with their pocket knives. Yeah. <laughs> I think there might be a loaf of bread at this table, but all we really see to be, as you said, is just sausage, vodka, sausage, vodka, breakfast done. God, I can't imagine the constipation. Can you imagine? <laughs> oh, God. That if thought, it was just sausage that and vodka. That. Oh, my God. <laughs> You'd be backed up for days, weeks even. Uh, Bacho asks Pavel um, if he's going to eat. Pavel seems sick. Bacho gives him vodka, tells him to drink, and drink again. Um, this is like like this is like me and you at New Year's. <laughs> <laughs> no, one's not enough. Keep going. There, yep. there you go. All right. Uh, it's an interesting moment because I think Bacho understands Pavel isn't cut out for this. Um, and I think what he's doing is by making him drink, he's he's kind of fuzzing his head to, to make it easier for him. I don't think he's getting him to drink just because he's being a bully. I think he's like, dude, I understand your constitution is, is wrecked right now. This is the only thing I can offer you is, you know, get a head buzz. And there's some suggestion that he's using this himself for that purpose of when he talked about all the vodka we can drink we're starting to get an impression from this scene and a couple others that he's similarly emotionally affected by this too and using a certain degree of alcohol to mute the pain spencer have you ever drank with russians i have never drank with russians before have you yes do yeah, tell. I remember well remember i lived in dc for a year uh, yes i do um oh i know i know because you guys helped me move jesus uh-huh. christ leave leave us somewhere right now rolling your fucking eyes oh god Worst mistake ever made. Um, it, no, there is a very popular Russian restaurant in D.C. Hmm. It's like a multi-story. It looks like a kind of like a house or an apartment building. It's multi-stories. And this is where Alexander Ovechkin, who plays for the, the Washington Capitals, would post up at nights. Hmm. Um, and so I went with just a, a friend of mine um, who kind of knew D.C. She, she showed me around and kind of showed me, oh, this is an interesting, like, the, the, you know. The DC experience is every everybody has to go to this weird Russian restaurant at least once, right? Uh-huh. Um, and God knows what. I mean, it might be like Trump Hotel by now. I don't know what the hell this thing is anymore. But um, we got there and immediately got, it's like communal sitting. So we were at a table with a bunch of other people. And they all just started talking to us. And dude, they would eat. They, it was interesting because, you know, I, I like to drink. But they just drank shots through their meal. <sighs> like mid plate, like they got an appetizer. They have, you know, half of it, take a shot, eat the other half, take a shot. Okay. Now main course, take a shot. Like <laughs> what the fuck? That's interesting. Cause I've never been drinking with Russian before, but it is definitely a, a trope that we see in things like this, that they're just nonstop drinking. It's just as if it is water that there's, that they're, they're drinking throughout their meal. And I, that is interesting to hear that that is not being that much exaggerated. Apparently. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, obviously, I mean, I, this is just my experience with like the five Russian nationals, but I was just amazed at the culture of drinking straight liquor through a meal. Whereas here, you know, you have a, you, you may have a glass of whiskey before, or a glass of something in, uh, beforehand, and you may have something after, but not a lot of people just sit and drink straight liquor through a meal. Yeah, maybe, may, yeah, not, not straight liquor at all. A beer, maybe, sure, but just straight vodka? I mean, when was the last time you just drank straight vodka? For me, it would... I don't know if I've ever just jugged a shot of vodka, actually. Two podcasts ago, for me. What? You were doing that on, on air? Yeah, remember I told you I, I made my drink, which was vodka? This is true. This also, this also <laughs> reminds me, we need to insert a brief new segment into this, po- into this podcast at the end of new news sources that are immediately on point about Chernobyl. <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah. We'll, but, uh, we'll get yeah, there. No. That's funny. You posed the question. When when did you have five, what two podcasts ago? Um, <laughs> I, forgot, I forgot about that entirely. Okay, you're you're down with this. Me, <laughs> I don't I don't see the appeal of vodka at all. Drinking that straight, it's just vile. 
Yeah, I agree. It's it's my least favorite liquor. Bacho explains that killing things for the first time fucks up people. Thank you, Bacho, for that profound statement. Mm-hmm. Um, Bacho explains that his first time was in Afghanistan. He shot a man in the stomach. I was there. Boom. Stomach. I was so scared I didn't pull the trigger again for the rest of the day. He says you think you're doing something that isn't you. Um, you know, like, that, that kind of makes sense. It's like you shoot somebody and you're like, I'm not a type of person who would shoot someone. Yeah. Um, but you wake up the next morning and you're still there and you realize that's actually who you were. Our goal is the happiness of all mankind. <laughs> they read on a banner um, yeah. of a, a dilapidated building behind them. Um, interesting sort of backdrop to this conversation. And they go back to work. Yeah. I, I love little Bacha's even comment afterwards after the other guy, I think his name is Garo, reads this. Is that he just looks up and kind of gets this oddly chipper look on his face and he says, I'm happy. I'm happy every day. Back to work. And they just go off again. And you have to imagine, with him being as a veteran of soldier as he is, he's given some version of this talk to a hell of a lot of new recruits. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, so it, it, it's just not a good situation. And I, I like the interplay between Bacho and Pavel. Because mm-hmm. I think that you, I, I, no matter your disposition um, in this type of thing, like, let's say, so like myself watching this, right? Yeah. I'm going to relate with Pavel, obviously, because mm-hmm. I'm not military and I don't, I don't kill things. I don't hunt. But someone like Doug can watch this, our friend Doug, who is a hunter, who is in the military. And I'm, I guarantee that he identifies with Bacho, right? Yeah, probably. I feel like it, it, it by having that sort of two very different characters who also get along and are, are doing their job, uh, you have a very relatable scene. Yeah. And, and this is, a, I think, a really important uh, conversation for Pavel. Uh, well, very important talk to, for Pavel to hear. Because the ultimate res- point of this is that this isn't changing you. You are not a different person as a result of this. This is not fundamentally alter your being. You are not forever stained. And that's an important thing that he needs to hear, as harsh and as horrible as what he's going about is and has to be. Interesting that you had that reading of that conversation, because I had the opposite reading, where he was basically saying, no, you are always the killer. You just didn't realize it. Yeah, but that again, it's just that you aren't... You, this is not fu- This is not altered your being. This is something you always were. You can go home again and be the same person, because you always were this. There is a life after this, because it's the same life as it was before. Interesting. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Yeah, I mean, I, I see what you're saying. I just didn't have that initial read on it, but mm-hmm. I think you're probably right. We cut to the moon rover pushing rocks off one of the roofs into the core. This is September 1986. It's bigger than I thought it was. Yeah, it is. Um, ominous music plays. Tarkanov comes into a room wherein folks are watching the rovers and ask Boris and Legasov to come outside. Outside, a Soviet has another rover ready, presumably to deal with the most radioactive roof. Which this one is real big. Marsha. Uh, yeah, it is. They drop the rover on the roof, cut to the control room. Boris is watching. They test going forward and back. It works. Boris says... Germans. <laughs> <laughs> they named it, uh, it was named Joker too, right? Something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, then the the monitors cut to static. They look at the control panel and they piece together that the vehicle is dead. So it lasted what fifteen seconds, something like that. Which again, that's that is actually fairly impressive. Credit to the Germans there that it even made it to the roof intact. Yeah, I feel like there was a there was a real mistake here. If you get that rover onto that roof, you don't test it. You just start pushing, start pushing. Yeah, start pushing immediately because you have a very small window of this thing actually working. Yeah, this also leads me to the practical question. What happened to these rovers? I'm guessing they couldn't just, you know, retrieve them and decontaminate them. Did they just push them into the core when they were done? 
I would think so. I mean, that's that, that's what I would have done as a liquidator. I yeah, mean, just they're, a, they're radioactive material at this point. You're just trying to get rid of it. Yeah, the, these things are as radioactive as the roof that they just cleared. They're now part of the containment situation. Yep, and we cut to Boris screaming into oh. a phone. <laughs> Boris is an interesting cat because he doesn't lose his temper much, but when he does, it it is startling. Like I, I think he would be a very effective boss because he doesn't. You know, he, he doesn't go that gear that often, but when he does, I think it would really prompt action by his peers and subordinates. The fury of a quiet man. Yep. Um, Boris is clearly angry that the technology didn't work. He ends the call by screaming, tell fucking Gorbachev, tell him, tell him. Woo! Boris really going native here. I mean, he is. Mm. And chooses to inflict no small amount of rage on the poor defenseless phone that is in his hands. Yeah, he slams the phone. He walks out and he throws the phone on the on the ground. He says, we need another one of those. <laughs> <laughs> and um, he, he says, quote, The official position of the state is that a global nuclear catastrophe is not possible in the Soviet Union. They told the Germans that the highest detected level of radiation was 2,000 Röntgen. They gave them the propaganda number. That robot was never going to work. Whew. Calling it the propaganda number. I mean, he's really. I mean, think about how careful he was in what he said in the first couple episodes, and yeah. now he's saying things like the propaganda number. We, we've truly. I mean, of all the characters in the show, he has the most profound arc, and this is we've clearly seen how far he's come now from where he started. Where once there was just a loyal twenty-five-year man party drone, we now see a guy that is actively calling a spade a spade when it comes to the party's corruption and closed-mindedness and short-sightedness too. Yep, agreed. Um, we cut to the liquidators working while Boris, Turkanov, and Legasov talk in a tent. Boris asks what would happen if they don't clear it, meaning Marsha, the, 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 the third roof that has the most radioactive material on it. 12,000 Runkin, Jesus. Uh, Legasov politely tells him that that's a dumb fucking idea. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> very politely, very politely, he does. <laughs> Basically, he's saying there's no way to cover it, and they have to cover it. Boris comes up with this nutty idea to pour boiling lead onto the roof. <laughs> Which Tarakanov says, he has a couple points against the theory. One, we just don't have the lead because there isn't any more left. And what little remains, apparently my soldiers are stripping, which I didn't know about. And two, it's freaking lead, Boris. It weighs a ton. We can't even carry that by helicopter. <laughs> I mean, he's really just reaching here. Uh, Tarkanov said they, or Boris says they need another stronger robot. Uh, Tarkanov says there is none. Well, Boris finally asks about the Americans. Tarkanov also offers the equally dumb theory of, well, can't we just fire graphite into the hole? To which Boris says, you want to shoot exploding bullets yep. at exposed <laughs> nuclear reactor? <laughs> <laughs> it's just an idea. Yeah, they were really passing around dumb fucking ideas. And you know Legasov had to be sitting there like, I can't believe I'm in a room with these two dummies. Just let them talk. Just let them talk. Don't contribute. Don't say anything right now. Boris asks about the Americans. He gets the response. If the Americans had that kind of technology, do you really think they'd give it to us? Yeah. Um, Yeah. Do, yeah, I kind of do. What? This is the Reagan era. This is, you know, the, the original, you know, axis of evil, evil empire kind of thing that Reagan was putting forward. Do you think Reagan would have approved it? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I do. I think because of the, the context of the situation. I mean, here, here's the thing. Function, realistically, no, he wouldn't have approved it, but only because he wouldn't have gotten perfect information. Yeah. If they would have ex explained to the Americans just how dire the situation is, then yeah, I think I think Reagan would have approved it. I, I think so, too. I think he would have done it in large part just so he could have rubbed their rubbed it in their noses. That if he had been told about the scale of this and seen this as essentially a political coup, that, hey, 
I can give them this because it's the Americans saving the day. Yeah, it would matter. Yep, you're absolutely right. Can you imagine he'd be he'd be behind the resolute desk in the Oval Office? Hello, my friends. Today I saved Russia. <laughs> and it, it's notable. It's credible, credible uh, a credit to the U.S. administration that I think it was about two years after this they uh, they suffered from the uh, Soviet Union suffered from the Armenian earthquake, one of the worst in their history. Like 50,000 people died. And they actually did come to the U.S. and ask for help for that one. And the U.S. agreed and offered help, uh, help and um, various aid groups to send in to help to assist the region. So, it's if they had actually gone gone to Reagan or Bush, whatever period, and asked, it, I agree. I think they would have done it, and they would have just gotten a lot of political hay and news capital out of doing it. But only if the Soviets were willing to give them an indication of what was actually happening. Yeah, which clearly, clearly... They were willing to do. Yeah, yeah. they wouldn't even do it to the Germans. Um, (laughs) So they decide it can't happen with robots. Legasov, I love this line. Uh, He suggests they use uh, (laughs) bio-robots. Which is the actual term they used, which is horrifying. (laughs) Bio-robots, Spencer. (laughs) Yeah, consider it from, from a basic machine, you know, circuit functioning standpoint. No technology whatsoever, possibly on the face of the earth, will endure this. But the human body will make it through. Bio-robots, fun fact, that's also what Jeff Bezos calls all Amazon employees. (laughs) Bio-robots. I did not know that. That is an interesting bit of trivia there. (laughs) We cut to Pavel. He's doing a little better. He's walking around. He's shooting stuff. Pavel asks, uh, where do they get their food? Pancho says they eat the chickens. They eat each other. Yeah, um, and also an answer to your question about where are the other pets, they probably ate all the bunnies and hamsters and guinea pigs and birds and whatever else they could catch already by this point. That's a fair point. And it, but it, but it's not, like, Bacho's wrong about that because they're not just eating other domesticated animals with each other because there are still dogs of Chernobyl that are alive. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. That live in the exclusion zone that just hunt. Like, they're just like wild dogs. Yeah, I mean, there's many, there's many a type of dog that are professionally trained ratters in terms of hunting down rats. I'm guessing there's still a pretty healthy rat and mouse population in this area that the dogs are surviving quite happily on. Yeah, and I forget if we talked about this on the pod or if you and I just talked about it offline. Um, but there are actually, uh, there is actually an adoption company that takes dogs from Chernobyl, the Chernobyl dogs, and will adopt them worldwide. Seriously? Yes, yes, there is. Because so enough time has passed that these dogs aren't dangerous to you. Sure. So what they've done is they've gone in and when they can find pups or, or smaller ones, uh, smaller dogs that can be sort of re-domesticated, uh, they've done so. And a matter of fact, last year, um, the first shipment of of puppies from Chernobyl uh, arrived in New York City. Hmm. Well, I have to ask, sir, you as a lover of dogs, uh, would you get a Chernobyl puppy? Nope. I'll tell you what I would do. I would I'd give money for someone else to take care of a Chernobyl puppy, <laughs> but I don't want it. Fuck now, no. I mean, it's one of those things where they've they've seen in other uh, animal species, particularly birds that are located within the Chernobyl exclusion zone, that they ha- have suffered mutations as a result of this long-term radiation exposure, like noticeably smaller brains. I'd be really curious to know what are the long-term health effects to these dogs as a result of this multi-generational radiation exposure now. So I, I looked into that, and apparently... So the dogs are living wild. They're like wild animals. Oh, they're feral, I'm sure, yeah. <laughs> and and that sort of life for a dog shortens their life expectancy so much to that's, like maybe five or six years. That's a very that they good don't, point. They don't know if the dogs would have otherwise died from 
complications of the radiation because they're dying so young anyway. That is a very good point there. I forgot about that. Yeah, uh, Bacho sends Pavel to go door to door. We see images of dogs and cats. This is really, I, I might have to get you to jump in here. Pavel's walking upstairs and he, see a do- he sees a dog with her pups. Clearly a mother, a uh, new litter of pups. And he mm. grimaces. Bacho doesn't hesitate, uh, but all- doesn't make fun of Pavel, but also tells him to go wait outside. Basically, which, I got this one. Which is, again, a, a very human great gesture on his part. I, I, I love his reaction, too, where he's coming, he's looking for Pavel because he sent him into the, uh, the, uh, the room-by-room search the way they do after the dogs run. And he comes up to him pretty angry at first that I was calling you. What is... Uh, ah, fuck. Yeah. He understands fully. And his immediate response is, just go outside. I got this. It's, again, yeah. that's... I want this man as one as a, as a if I've ever in the military. I want this guy as my boss because he is just down to protect the people under his command. Yeah, and I mean, you know, look, sometimes you know I, I deal with this. I've, I'm a, a supervisor, and when your employees have a tough situation, you know, it part of your job is to say, okay, I got this one. I'll, I'll take this one. You take a knee, um, and he does that. Doesn't hesitate. Uh, Pavel walks out. Here's gunshots. Um, Pacho, ice in his veins, man. Ice in his veins. And this is also the scene where I was talking about of where, you know, Pavel goes outside and just listens to the gunshots in the background, starts drinking his canteen, and he's flinching as he's drinking because it's obviously vodka that they put in their canteens as they're going about here. <laughs> Not a lick of water to be found in all of Ukrainian or USSR. Um, Pavel and Bacha ride back. They pour the animal carcasses into a hole and concrete is poured over it. With, with, with a haunting song playing as they do so. Dispense, it's in my notes do you, to ask you, do you know what that song is? I have the lyrics, if you'd like. Yeah, fire away. Uh, I obviously am not going to sing it because I don't remember the tone, but the lyrics I have are "Black Raven, why do you circle over me? You don't have your prey. You don't. You won't have your prey, Black Raven. I'm not yours. You won't have your prey, Black Raven. I'm not yours. Black Raven, why do you circle over me? You won't have your prey, Black Raven. I'm not yours. And this continues to repeat that way. So a very, very haunting little song about avoiding the specter of death above you. Yep. Good, good. Thank you for that. I thought you might have it because I know you you download the scripts, right? Uh, actually, it isn't in the script. I had to pull up a separate video that was uh, translating the song as they went. Uh, some, the script does, actually does not mention the music. Apparently, that was something they added in after they wrote the script. Yeah, I watched this with the closed captioning on, and it just said music plays. Yeah. Maybe it, so. I think it's intentionally meant to be even more haunting on the fact that we can't understand it. And the, the tone of voice and the chanting effect of it makes it all the more uh, dark and macabre as, as, the, as the scene is playing. Cut to October 1986 for those keeping track at home. I'm one year, three months old. Tarkanov is talking to a group of liquidators. And clearly Legasov's mandate that no humans go on the roof of Reactor 4 is shot to shit at this point. Each liquidator will have 90 seconds to remove rock from the ceiling. Quote, these are the most important 90 seconds of your lives. Commit your, task to, commit your task to memory and do your job. It's a powerful st- speech that Tarkinoff delivers right there in terms of these soldiers. That this, this, this is for the sake of the world. Go and do your job right now. All right. Are you ready for an all-time Lee is being inconsistent moment? Please. What you got? I think I would crush this job. Man, you catch me off guard sometimes. Go on, please. I, I think I'd be so good at this. Like, you give me 90 seconds, and all I'm doing is flinging rock into that big exposed reactor core. I can, look, we see the POV of a guy who does this, and he fucking sucks at it. Yes, I think I, can, I could clear probably four or five times the amount that he does. 
he doesn't even he has he feels the need to pick every single piece up and kind of stir around just shovel them just literally scrape them and dump them into the core i think i'd be very good at this yeah one of the things i was saying to myself as i was watching this is like okay but if i was doing this i think i would go close enough to the edge that i can just scoop and toss and scoop and toss and scoop and toss and just do it that way i feel like you'd get a lot more it's not helped by the fact that this is something I never really ex- conceptualized before of how freaking heavy these pieces are. I mean, what do they say? Some of these things weigh like 20 kilograms or whatever else? These are yeah, you know, I don't, I don't know 40 to 50 kilograms. We're talking 100 pound pieces of graphite they're trying to lift. And you see these guys, they're, they send this team out. That they're struggling. Two of them together have to lift some of these larger pieces and chuck them into the core. Dude, I think if you and I we're doing this we could oh. we could clear a hell of a lot of rock in 90 seconds oh yeah if we if we were a team effort on this that we'd, we'd do so much better than this poor guy does admittedly this is a job to which they can have zero training for before they go in yeah so this this guy he fumbles stumbles he looks over the rail jesus christ the one thing you're not supposed to do he looks over the rail twice what an idiot and he needs someone else to help him pick up a piece of graphite that's okay it's it's big but he eventually yep. gets his uh, foot stuck and tears his shoe falls over again into a puddle of water and he has dismissed Spencer. He is not the MVP of this episode. No. And two, two practical questions for you. Um, question number one. Would you have given them Geiger counters if you were the commanding officer and planning this operation? Because no. I wouldn't have at all. No, I don't know what that does to help you. Because, I mean, what are you going to do? Like, the Geiger counter goes high around a big piece of graphite. Are you not going to go over there? <laughs> That's my I mean, job. Still, I to move this you, now because of that. He still has to get moved at some point. So I don't know what, how this should be guiding your decision making. My guess is that it's actually meant to draw them to the worst things they need to move. That this is meant to, this is meant to be a dousing rod to bring you to where we want you to go rather than what it's normally supposed to be. But, again... I don't think you should do that. I think you should just tell them, move everything. Doesn't matter. Don't want you to check. Everything goes off the roof. I, so the, the the officially commissioned podcast with the, the show creator, mm-hmm. he addresses this. Uh, maybe not for this particular scene, but he addresses the fact that in the show, they give liquidators or workers or whoever Geiger counters mm-hmm. uh, more often than yeah. the Soviet really gave them out. Just to give a sense to the audience of just how much radioactivity they're dealing with. Hearing that creepy sort of buzzing of the of the Geiger counter. Mm-hmm. I think is a tool they're doing oh, it, to show you the danger. That and the ominous music, obviously. No, very much. And I figured that was the case because Geiger counters are actually pretty damn valuable and hard to make. And so you wouldn't you wouldn't want to have to keep on disposing of them after every single person that uses one. Right. Um, but yeah, it makes for a wonderfully effective scene as you see them roaming around and see it just spike. Like when he looks over the edge of that core, that needle is buried. You're just hearing nothing but the sound of that thing growling at you. Um, and then my other comment is just that the... As he slips, as he falls, after he wedges his boot and takes like an extra 20 seconds to get back into this room, which we've already just heard that if you go to a full two minutes, your lifespan has been cut in half. Um, yep, yep. He, cut, he, he looks down, he gets in, he's even fell into a pool of water, so it's soaking into his clothing. Uh, he looks down and sees that he's sliced through what little protective gear he has. And they have a delightfully... I don't know if it's cold or just clinical line from the site officer where he just says, Comrade soldier, you're done. Yep. <laughs> and I know he's, there. 
more than a double meaning. He probably realizes it too. Um, well, both of them probably realize it too. But yeah, it's a very effective scene of just the sound work on this show is incredible. The sound of the Geiger counters going off, the sound of them struggling to go about this, and just the sound of the clangs as that guy is hammering the, the signal for them to come back is all very, very well done. Completely agree. Um, we cut to Pripyat. This is December 1986. Yulana is there. She's walking into a building. Um, I don't think they should be in Pripyat, but <laughs> the reason they're there is because they need to be able to talk without anybody listening. Yeah. Um, she sees Boris and Legasov. Legasov explains that they are going to put Dyatlov, Brokhanov, and Fulman on trial. Explains that they are going to be called as expert witnesses. Before that happens, Legasov is being sent to Vienna, which is the headquarters of the International Atomic Energy Agency. One thing to note about the scene, too, is that it's uh, Sherpina that opens with, I'm sorry for all this, but we needed to speak without, and gestures that they're being monitored. So it clearly seems like it was his idea to avoid the monitoring to go here, which, again, just shows how much he's become on their side and their page. Yeah, he, he is. He's completely flipped. Uh, not at all the same man he was in episode one or two. Um, and he's supposed to tell the world so Boris is explaining that Legasov is supposed to tell the world what happened so mm-hmm. good luck and luck with that Yulana explains that she's figured out what happened she has a timeline that she's printed out and she hands copies to Boris and Legasov this is, this is a very Hermione move here um, she's a she's, very Hermione character she's printed out a timeline for them like you could just talk through it you don't you show enough <laughs> <laughs> she, is, she is showing off. She, she is a very, she is a professional researcher. She has done a hell of a lot of legwork right now. And she wants to a certain degree, not only just tell them, but also show them, here's what I've done. She knows that bar that you go to that you, she knows that Perkins waitress that you, <laughs> you Spencer <laughs> had the fling with. Uh, she's printed out copies of her driver's license and handed it out to all your friends. Um, what? I'm <laughs> going back to the metaphor of her, her, her chasing you down in this alternate timeline. Ah, gotcha. Your, your okay, now I understand. Like, yes, the, I'm, with, I'm with you. Sorry, you, we were, you were so committed to the bit. I was have a few steps behind, but I've caught up now. <laughs> she explains that there was gross misconduct, neglect, etc., but she still doesn't understand the explosion. That's the part that's confusing her. Tuptonoff is telling the truth that the explosion happened after he pressed the AZ5 button. This is what she's concluded. That Tuptonoff was not lying to her before he died. She thinks a particular article has the answer, but two pages have been removed. And Legasov gives her a knowing look. Um, Legasov then admits that he's seen it before, but they didn't know it could cause an explosion. In 1975, an RBMK reactor in Leningrad, the operators pressed AZ-5, and for a brief moment, the power went up, not down. Quote, if the boron control rods are completely withdrawn from the reactor, the first thing that enters the core isn't boron, it's graphite. We talked about this in episode one. Mm-hmm. The control rods have graphite tips. It displaces water and steam, so the reactivity doesn't go down. It goes up dramatically. Boris says, why did they press them? Like I self-explained, they didn't know. So they conclude the Kremlin, the Kremlin did this. It, yeah, there's some fault with the operators, but they could not have possibly known what they were about to do was going to explode the reactor core, but they could have been told. <laughs> so yeah. it's a it's, it's tough. Yeah, I mean, like I said, goes into the operators that these circumstances could only exist if they have pushed the reactor already to the edge of disaster. It is their fault, but it's not only their fault. So Yulana clearly is pushing Legasov to actually tell the truth when he goes to Vienna. Um, and then Boris has this great line. What you are suggesting is that Legasov humiliate a nation that is obsessed with not being humiliated. Yeah. And we get a really interesting conversation between these three of where both of them are giving him 
Both of him are giving him good advice. They're telling him effectively the right thing to do, but from very different perspectives and from very different interests about who they're trying to protect right now. Yeah, and I actually have in my notes that I, I felt like this was Boris trying to protect Legasov. Very much. He's actively trying to protect his friend. He's seeing Komiuk as saying, you're just very casually trying to take my friend and martyr him for the sake of your cause. I won't let you do that. If you right. want to, if you were in a position to go do that, fine. You could make that decision, but I'm not going to let you guilt him into doing it for you. Yeah, and Jared Harris does a great job of kind of having the angel and the devil on the shoulder, right? Because yeah. he, he he's not really tipping his hand either way as to who he's who he's siding with. Yeah, and, and both of them are right from their own perspectives. Komiuk is saying this is too important for the individual to matter. We need to do this, and tells the story, the horrendous story about what has been going on with respect to. Um, uh, Ignatenkov's uh, wife. I'm blanking on her name right now. What's the name? What's the name of the, of the uh... Ludmilla? Ludmilla, yes. Who apparently she's been keeping tabs on. It just says that we're in a situation right now where children are dying for their mothers, and this can't be allowed to happen again. This can't be allowed to exist. We have to be willing to sacrifice ourselves. And Sherbita is just not having it. Is this that I've seen? I've seen men, many men braver than you been put in this moment where their moral convictions don't mean a damn thing. It leaves you. All you want in that moment is not to be shot, which is a great line about being confronting the metaphorical fire squad. This is a lovely scene in two people having a conversation about what needs to occur, and we see again just how far Boris has gotten in Legosov's camp that he's just not willing to let a friend suffer for their cause, no matter what that cause is. Completely agree. Yeah, the line there is, um, do you know Vasily Ignatenko? No, he was a fireman. He died two weeks after the accident. I've been looking in after his widow. Yeah. She gave birth, a girl. She lived for four hours. They said the radiation would have killed the mother, but the baby absorbed it. The fuck, Ludmilla? Ah! I, she is, she's enraging to me. And, and it's interesting, because in listening to other podcasts and, and talking with other folks, I don't think people are as outraged with Umilla, Ludmilla as I am. Like, she's like almost like a villain for me in this show. Like, what the fuck is she doing? She's an interesting character. She, in some ways, is meant to be almost like the polar opposite of Komiuk, uh, in terms of their knowledge, their bearing, how they go about their lives. She is acting under utter naive ignorance in terms of the decisions that she makes. Her only focus was her love for her husband, love for the family that they wanted to have together. And good God, does her decision making destroy any hope of that in the future? Yeah. Um, then we have this great line from uh, Yulana Komyuk. She says, to hell with your deal, to hell with our lives. Someone has to start telling the truth. Yeah. Great line. Um, yeah. We cut to... Go well, ahead. Just, just a little comment from the script. I'm um, just looking through the script now as we're going through this. And it says, immediately after she says that, uh, this, the, the little stage note says, Legosov looks at them, Komyuk who, is, Komyuk who is right, and Sherbina, dot, 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 who is also right. And only he can decide. And that's very much what they're building up in this moment. Yeah, that's that's great. That, that reiterates you know your read on the situation, which is they both are telling the truth. Mm-hmm. And they're both offering good advice, even though it's contradictory. Because Bor- I mean, Boris is proposing a scenario to fix this, but he's doing it through means of trusting the KGB. That we go to them and we basically make a deal that will suppress this and not reveal it if they allow us to go in and fix this. And he's still enough of a party man that he's willing to hope that this would occur. And I think also more than anything... Even even the doubts he has about this, he's not willing to sacrifice Legosov on that on the off chance that the KGB stabs in the back. Yep, uh, the liquidators are let go. Uh, we cut to the camp. Pavela smoking a cigarette. Cut to a hospital ward. Mothers with their kids. Ludmilla is alone with no kid. 
So quick notes on Ludmilla Ignatenko, real lady, uh, still alive. Um, and her story is told in a book called Voices of Chernobyl. And that's mm-hmm. where the show really t- got her story and decided to, to, sh- to include it in this miniseries. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ludmilla, of course, was told after her, her child died um, a couple hours after being born that she'd never be able to give birth again. That was wrong. She did give birth to a son, and she lives with her son now in Ukraine. That's, that is good and heartwarming to hear. Yep. Okay, end of episode. Spencer, what'd you think? I thought, thought it was a very... Again, each of these episodes is doing something completely different, and each of them is doing it so very well, and somehow linking these very diversely focused episodes into a common package. That is just... It's an artful achievement. It's really impressive to see how well... They're taking very different subject focuses, very different themes of each episode, but interwinding them damn near perfectly. Agreed. I mean, how they pivoted from basically like a a action slash horror movie to something much more cerebral in episode four and then, spoiler alert, in episode five uh, is great. I mean, just masterful storytelling. They're, They're able to basically switch genres on you from episode to episode. Would you have expected in episode one of watching this that this show would end with a courtroom drama and that it would be still no. awesome? <laughs> no idea. No, I'm really looking forward to next week. Um, but I'm going to have to do some real studying to try to figure out just what the hell Legasoff is talking about. <laughs> <laughs> this is the fun thing about doing this is that we're re- we really enjoy this material. We really want to learn more about it. And we're kind of sort of having to learn how to be nuclear engineers to make this work. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 <laughs> I'm learning way more about it than I ever thought I could learn. Um, okay, you want to pivot to best line of the episode? Uh, yeah, let's do best line, and then if we could, for just a moment, let's talk about those two news articles that we talked about this week, and then we can go into my segment. That work for you? Yeah, let's do it. So I, I've already selected my best line, but if there's any lines that you want to get out there and propose, fire away. Uh, ooh, let's go through my list. Um, you've, already, you've already done most of them in terms of uh, all the lines that... Um, Bacho, the Bacho has with Pavel in terms of when you hit an animal and it doesn't die, you keep shooting. Don't let them suffer. I'll kill you. That line, yep, that's or cool. or his line about his line to Bacho. About, I thought, well, that's it, Bacho. You put a bullet in someone. You're not you anymore. You'll never be you again. But you wake up the next morning and you're still you. You realize that was you all along. You just didn't know. It's a great line. Um, well, I think my favorite line of the episode, if I was going to offer just one in terms of my favorite, uh, it has to be uh, the line of the speech that Tarkanov gives the soldiers about, I'm just gonna, if you don't mind, I'll just read it in full because it's a great, yeah, great series line. Yeah. Com- comrade soldiers, the Soviet people have had enough of this accident. They want us to clean this up and they've entrusted you with this serious task. Because of the nature of the working area, you will each have no more than 90 seconds to solve this problem. Listen carefully to each of my instructions and do exactly as you've been told. This is for your own safety and the safety of your comrades. You enter reactor building three, climb the stairs, but do not immediately proceed to the roof. When you get to the top, wait inside behind the entrance to the roof and catch your breath. You will need it for what comes next. This is the working area. We must clear the graphite. Some of it is blocked weighing approximately 40 to 50 kilograms. They must all be thrown over the edge here. Watch your comrades moving fast and actually play real-life footage of the liquidators working. That's not... They didn't fake this for the... uh, the, the episode, that's the real footage they recorded as the locators were working as they're playing on the yeah, screen. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. That's really cool. Yeah. Watch your comrades moving fast through this opening and turning to the left and entering the workplace here. Take care not to stumble. There's a hole in the roof. Take care not to fall. <laughs> you will need to move quickly. And you will need to move carefully. Do you understand your mission as I have described it? Yes, comrade general. These are the most important 90 seconds of your lives. Commit your task to memory and do your job. 
it's just a powerful speech about what they've gone about doing this. And again, it's powerful that Tarkanov is there and was really there overseeing all of these troops. Yep. And has been yep. one of the most persistent voices in speaking for the rights and the liquidators and what they sacrificed and what they did and how they've been kind of suppressed and forgotten by the institutional state. He's an impressive figure himself who is also still alive. Yep. I'll give my runner up and then I'll give the, the gold nut Please. for the rest of the episode. Runner-up, uh, uh, Yulana. If it was me, Boris, it isn't. I've known braver souls than you, Komyuk. Men who had that moment and did nothing. Because when it's your life and the life of everyone you love, your moral conviction doesn't mean anything. It leaves you. And all you want in that moment is not to be shot. Very good line. But you have such a great Skarsgård voice. Again, your Boris voice is perfect. <laughs> Thank you. I've been working on it. Uh, the... But the best line of the episode goes to Yulana Komyok, to hell with your deal, to hell with our lives. Someone has to start telling the truth. Yeah, that is a great line. And it is very much her perspective on this. And it is very much what she wants to convince Legosov that they have to do. That if we have to throw ourselves on this on our swords to make sure this never happens again, it is a small price to pay. Yep. All right. Well, we have a couple of current events to talk about. This God, is a brand brand new segment for the uh, the Mangum Talks TV podcast. Spencer, what are we? Uh, what's going on in the news? Uh, well, two things. And again, we weren't expecting to have to do a current events segment with respect to the Chernobyl cleanup, or should have been <laughs> said about events happening thirty years ago. Um, but you know, things come up. First of which, I sent you an article earlier this week about a particular consumer product that is now being made in the exclusion zone. Do you remember what that product was? <laughs> yes. You know, it's funny. You you sent that to me. You were the first. And I had like four other people. I'm not surprised. Um, yeah. So basically, there's a company uh, that has been formed that is making Chernobyl vodka. Name. They're taking, mm-hmm. they're taking grain that was gro- uh, grown inside the exclusion zone, mm-hmm. distilling it and grading vodka. There's only one bottle in existence now, but apparently they have plans to create at least 500 more. You, you uh, remember what the name of it was? No, it's it's they actually named it Atomic. Oh gosh, yeah, Atomic. <laughs> I didn't remember that. Uh, yeah, and so I don't know. They they claim that it's not remotely dangerous for you. All the impurities, etc., go away during the distilling process. I want nothing to fucking do with this vodka. Uh, what do you think, Spencer? <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I love the actual description of where the, uh, they when they asked what was radioactive, they just kind of say this is no more radioactive than any other vodka. <laughs> Which that's a that is obviously a scientist, not a marketer. Yeah, gave that answer. <laughs> they asked a, the BBC asked a professor that was working with the University of Portsmouth about okay, what is this and is this safe? He says, well, yeah, they've been growing rye in the exclusion zone. It's made entirely from local ingredients, and you know it is a distilled thing, uh, so it's not contaminated. It should just be fine. It is a very unique product. Um, I still don't want to try it at all. <laughs> no, I want no parts of it. Uh, and, you know, I'll, obviously, I don't like vodka all that much, but I, I don't want Chernobyl vodka. I would take a bottle of it though, <clears throat> um, and uh, just throw it down a well. <laughs> I wouldn't even have it in my house, to be honest with you. Uh, apparently, the re- the actual guy who wrote the article tried some, and uh, him and a couple other experts came to the conclusion that it really tasted more like a grain spirit than a vodka. It had actually a lot of fruity notes. You can still taste the rye. So, uh, good on them. Maybe they'll yeah. have a successful product going forward. I'm still not touching it with the 10-foot pole. Just, I call it pure superstition. I don't want near it. Yeah, uh, I'm right there with you. And the second piece, this one. I, you texted me about this one, and I was I was actually driving. I saw it go across my phone. Um, 
and just thought, man, fucking Spencer is really committed to lying to me this week. <laughs> you thought I would make this shit up? I did. Well, I just thought it couldn't possibly be true. All right. Well, I'm going to do this best as I can from uh, what information has been released. But last week, uh, there was an explosion at a, mil- a Arctic Naval Test Range um, about few, uh, several hundred miles north of Moscow on the Arctic Sea at a town, let me pronounce it right, uh, Severodvinsk, of where an explosion occurred of where at least five people died and where three people injured when a rocket apparently exploded and was in the act of launching. That is already tragic. That is already already a horrendous thing. I feel bad for everybody that happened or whatever else. But what's interesting from our perspective is that the nearby town apparently suffered an immediate high radiation spike. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. I'm only laughing because I can just imagine how many things were thrown against the wall when Vladimir Putin heard about this. <sighs> Considering the Chernobyl miniseries just aired. Yeah. And apparently, and again, this has been a subject to constant denial from Russian authorities and Russian militaries. We don't have any official source on this, but from journals, they were able to get in there real quick before they basically locked down the area. Uh, people were saying that they'd gotten reports that they needed to start putting iodine in all of their water that they were consuming. They needed to stay indoors and take active measures to shelter themselves from radiation. That they needed to keep their children out of any exposed area until further notice. What does this remind us of, sir? Sounds familiar. Yeah. Uh, again, they're swearing up and down, and it seems like the evidence may bear this out to at least some degree, that there was this brief spike of radiation, it's gone back down to normal, that according to the administration, there is no evidence of anything levels necessary to cause radiation sickness, while still apparently telling all the civilians in the area everything that they need to do to avoid active radiation sickness. So... To the degree we can trust the administration, to the degree we can trust the military, to the degree we can trust what initial reports are coming out from people who are actually receiving this information, this suggests that the level of uh, nuclear incidents occurring in Russia are apparently on an ongoing basis. Yeah, it just shows that like what we're talking about, yeah, it occurred 30 years ago, but this is not in the abstract. I mean, this shit could easily happen um, again, you know, in, in 2019, 2020. Yeah, and actually this is one of two major... Um, military incidents that have happened in Russia over the course of the last couple of weeks. Did you see that also that major explosion that happened in Siberia? No. A massive munitions plant went up. Look at the videos of that when we're after the podcast, because it's one of those explosions that, you know, alters the cloud patterns. It's that kind of massive effect. Wow. Yeah, okay. I will check that out. But yeah. So we've talked before about some of these being ongoing issues. Here's an example that apparently there are nuclear incidents occurring to this day in Russia. And Sadly, uh, over the course of my next little spiel, I'm going to talk about another one. And that is a great segue to my favorite um, segment we've ever done on any Mangum Talks podcast, uh, Spencer's Wikipedia Spiral of the Week. Take it away, Spencer. Okay, we previously, uh, the last episode, talked about the uh, INES levels, that is the International Nuclear Event Scale levels of disaster, uh, with Chernobyl, of course, being a ridiculously high seven that the entire scale is built around. Last week, we talked about the Three Mile Isle incident, which is a five, an accident with wider consequences. Now I'm going to talk about what a six is. As far as I know, there is only one six on the scale. It's also one of the earliest entries on this scale, in that it started in 1949, and effectively continues to this day. I'm going to talk to you about what is called the Kishtim disaster, happening around the Mayak chemical combine. 
This is a location situated in the Urals, um, which was originally constructed as a result of the fact that Stalin would not be left behind on any race with the West, particularly the race to develop nuclear weapons. You may remember when we dropped a bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, not only was this to win a war, but this may as well also been to send a message to all of our potential political rivals that we have this and we're willing to use it. Consider that going forward. Stalin could not allow that to exist for long. He could not allow the Soviet Union to be behind in this regard to allow the West to have that over him. And so he engaged in a massive initiative to develop the Soviet Union's own nuclear hardware. This involved a colossal spying program into our own sites at Los Alamos and, uh, and other allies, but it also involved setting up a colossal plant in an area that was later called Mayak. Again, situated in the Urals, it's a town that they built up in one of Stalin's famous secret communities, which you'll again, you'll love the name of this community. It was uh, City Number 40. <laughs> oh god i love those that spectrum naming <laughs> yeah uh the, later had other names like uh 40 uh Chilbyinsk 65 um it was a city of where people were sent there and the moment that they were sent to work there they became unpersons they no longer they ceased to exist this is what the level of a secret community was is that once you were there working at this facility you had no outside connection to the world it's as if you had died you had no life other than this project that the government had assigned to you. And this project was the development of nuclear weapons, the, develop, the refining of nuclear fuel by any means necessary, no matter the human environmental cost, as fast as possible. This plant was built fast. This plant was built into operation from 1945 to 1948, and then immediately began refining nuclear fuel for the purpose of making a nuclear weapon. The immediacy of this operation meant that they adopted basically no safeguards about what they were going to do with the leftover nuclear material or waste after they were done with it. And so they basically decided, okay, well, we've got a lake, we've got a river, let's just dump them in there. Oh my god. And so they started just dumping tons, hundreds of tons of nuclear material, highly radioactive nuclear material, into these bodies of water. The river's fun because it flows all the way to the Arctic Sea across dozens of villages. Like, you know, 22 villages are just lining this river. Hundreds of thousands of people are using this as their primary source of water. And they're just dumping nuclear fuel and nuclear material into it. They also start dumping into a nearby lake. And when I say dumping, I mean they're drawing in water for the purpose of their cooling operations and just spitting it back out again to this lake, in and out and in and out, eventually using it as a dry cast storage facility of where they're dumping all the nuclear fuel straight into it and just leaving it there, or wet, uh, open water storage facility. It's to the, it got to the point of where nowadays the top 11 feet of the uh, soil underneath this lake are straight nuclear fuel. That's how much they're dumping into this thing. Yikes. It is, it is, it quickly became at the time the single most radioactive dangerous place on the earth. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, for the surrounding villages, they quickly, they found out within a few years that uh, the cancer rates uh, went up a bit, like between two and five times, as people were getting exposed to radiation levels that were actively causing radiation sickness. They took a sample of like 500 people in one of these major communities and found that 200 of them had symptoms of radiation sickness. That's the scale of what effect they're having on these communities in terms of how much they're dumping. 
They start an evacuation of most of these communities that are along this river once they start to realize, oh, radiation's a thing. Huh, didn't realize that. Uh, but they don't but they don't evacuate all of them. And it takes years to evacuate the ones they do. The largest city, they just leave there. People are still living there. To this day, they only Is this start... could this be because they, they didn't want to tip their hand that this had happened, right? They don't want the West to know. That is a key part of it, yes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the largest city, I don't have it right in front of me. Um, uh, it's Musul, sorry, I'm going to butcher Russian, but Musul Yumovo. Uh, they only started evacuating that one in 2006. And they've Wait still. Wait a second. They had, to, they had to evacuate a town called Musul Yumova. Musul Yumovo. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. <laughs> Must you move? Okay, that's yeah, good. That's, yeah, that's sorry. rich. Sorry. <laughs> Didn't realize that, but maybe the, maybe the Russians are just playing a joke on us there. Um, to this day, they've only still evacuated about half the people from that village. As for the lake itself, eventually they realized that, oh shit, we've got the most radioactive spot on the planet. Well, we can't stop our operations, so we'll leave that. We'll not do anything about that, but the new stuff will store it in an underground container underneath the lake, 20, about 24 feet below ground, which is again about the 30 feet we talked about on the show before. Uh, they start putting all of their extra nuclear fuel or nuclear waste in this facility, and they build a kind of cooling system to deal with it. Because they're vaguely aware of the fact that if you put lots of nuclear material together in an isolated place, it tends to generate a massive amount of heat. So they install a cooling system, and they're thinking, ah, you know, it's fine. I'm sure that'll be great. And keep putting more and more material into this thing. Um, In 1957... Uh, so this plant's now been in operation for about eight years. The cooling system shuts down. It stops working. And so the decay heat just keeps going. And for reasons I don't fully understand, they decided not to really fix the cooling system. <laughs> They're just rolling the dice that everything's going to be fine. Unfortunately, it wasn't. Uh, because with this amount of nuclear fuel compressed together, it eventually reached temperatures of about 320 degrees Celsius. That's uh, three times the boiling point of water. Until eventually it exploded with about the force of 100 tons of TNT. Wow. Mm. Uh, this spread a massive amount of nuclear fuel and nuclear and radioactive waste into the air. Yeah, uh, sure. Probably about 80 tons of it spread into the air, contaminating an area of about 20,000 square miles, where about mm, 300,000 people called home. People at the time reported glowing lights throughout the sky after this occurred, without any degree of explanation as to exactly what happened. In fact, while some communities immediately around the lake were evacuated in the weeks after the incident, most of the rest of the people within this 20,000 square mile zone were not evacuated for years. Up to 10 years, actually, in terms of the area that was affected and contaminated. This is spreading uh, nuclear fuel like cesium-137, which is incredibly, incredibly dangerous. Incredibly dangerous radioactive isotope. has a half-life of about 30 years of where it's one of the famous ones of where they would put it in nuclear devices to salt them so that an area wouldn't be able to be ha- inhabited for years afterwards. Cesium that they spread from this incident was at 10 times the level of Chernobyl. That's the concentrated nuclear fuel we're spreading about as a result of this. It is colossal. It is terrifying. It is dangerous. And it was kept entirely hidden. That at this point, from this contaminated river, from these contaminated lakes, from this 20,000-mile zone, we're talking half a million people that have been exposed to dangerous levels of radioactivity. And no news gets, about, gets out about this at all. 
They relocate some of the communities, again, very slowly because they don't want to make any sign that there is all of a problem with their nuclear program. They evacuate some of these communities around the river while they leave one of the largest villages there and engage in a three-generation monitoring project of what the effects of constant background radiation effect on people's health is, which... <laughs> that's their own level of a Tuskegee experiment occurring in the Soviet Union there. And they avoided, they, act, they kept this plant in operation, continuing to produce, continuing to contaminate the area for the next 30 years after this explosion occurred. Fun fact, it's no longer, as far as we can tell, making plutonium, but the plant's still in operation to this day. It is now refining spent nuclear fuel fuck? so that they can use it again in their nuclear reactors. Jesus Christ. It's still going. It's a cordoned off area, but it's still in operation. Um, what's fun about this, too, is that, again, this did not, very little of this made the international press. A few articles came out, but most of this didn't come out to the international community until after the fall of the Soviet Union. It wasn't until like 1989 they even admitted this occurred. So years after the incident. Two fun things. One, U.S. knew ex the U.S. and the CIA in particular knew exactly what happened in detail. In fact, Gary Powers, the famous uh, flyer of the uh, U-2 that was shot down of the Soviet Union, was taking pictures of this site after it occurred so they could find out more of what had happened. But they suppressed it and refused to release it to the U.S. media or broader in the U.S. government. You want to know why? Why? Because they were afraid that it would lead to distrust of our own nuclear program. Uh, well, it kind of makes sense. It kind of makes sense. But it led to a disaster rivaling this, you know, not quite reaching the levels of, well, not at all reaching the levels of Chernobyl, but still almost as high up on the list as you can possibly get, being utterly suppressed. As a result of this, and I've kind of already described to a certain degree the uh, effects that we're seeing in terms of their monitoring efforts and their cleanup efforts, very little was done about a lot of these locations, other than they just moved people and then just kind of left them as is. Uh, this led to a variety of problems. Uh, one of the issues is, is that the lake in question, again, the most radioactive spot on the face of the planet for decades after this incident, pretty much until Chernobyl, eventually, over the course of several decades, dried up and just became a dry lake bed, to which the Soviets went, eh, okay, that's great. Something else we don't have to monitor then. What they didn't realize is that when a lake bed dries up, it has a lot of sediment at the bottom that can now be carried by the winds. And when a series of windstorms occurred there, the exact same 20,000-mile area was immediately contaminated by the 11 feet of nuclear fuel that is formed at the bottom of this lake. This led uh, both Brezhnev and uh, Gorbachev to have to eventually turn this lake into a concrete pool of where they had to fill it in with concrete so as to try to keep the lake bed from being exposed to the outside world. I find it kind of funny that those efforts in terms of filling it in with concrete ended uh, in 1986, almost immediately before Chernobyl happened. <laughs> That's funny. Here's what's also <clears throat> horrifying, though. They didn't apparently fill in the entire lake. What? No. Why? I don't know. I Was don't know. I <laughs> Maybe. It wasn't finally completely backfilled and subject to constant monitoring until November of 2015. Good gracious. Conservation work was completed in December of 2016 with the final layer of lock and soil being added on top of this thing. So now it is a permanent dry cast nuclear storage facility. 
Um, what's fun, too, is that this is also, given that this plan is still in operation, people still can't live there, uh, all of this is still ongoing in terms of the secrecy and efforts um, to suppress this from the outside community. There is a woman that grew up in the area, I'm going to butcher the crap out of her name, Nedzedzda Kutepova, who is a human rights advocate who has led a lot of the uh, more modern documentary efforts into this community to talk about what happened. She grew up in the city, this closed city, uh, and has documented the human health effects that have happened afterwards from people that were lived there and in the outside communities. Even to this day, a lot of these outside communities have a rate of cancer five times the normal average, which can't be explained other than this incident. She led recently several documentary groups to go in to examine the areas to measure radiation levels at some of these above-ground lakes that were never still covered up. And as a result of that, a uh, result of her efforts of trying to get this to greater public consciousness, she was brought up on charges uh, as being a possible a spy for foreign powers and was forced to flee the Soviet Union and now lives in Paris and can never go back because she is a wanted criminal. And that is the level of secrecy that is still at play with respect to these instances. So that is the Kishtim disaster, as it's called. It is horrifying. The incident like this was not only kept secret, it's still, aspects of it are still kept secret and still not fully, efforts are still not being fully made to either clean it up or, or help the people that are being actively affected by this. We have no idea of how many people have died as a result of this incident. I've, I've heard reports saying around... 8,000 is probably a reasonable figure in terms of the number of excess cancer deaths, whatever else that have occurred. Mm -hmm. But even among those that have not died, with rates of cancers being through the charts, with rates of birth defects being off any measurable scale, this is an ongoing disaster that is still effectively being denied and covered up. And that is horrifying. Whew. Well, on that cheery note, we can wrap up. Um, yeah, that, that one's tough, man. That Like, the idea that they didn't get this thing you know, fully covered and contained, quote, contained until 2015, 2016 is just insanity. Yeah, it was still giving off radiation. It was still affecting the outside areas. And there, again, I watched part of the documentary. Sorry, I couldn't watch all of it. I'll, I'll look at it more. But they were going around with guided counters. And eventually they were reaching points of where they were approaching lakes of where they had to just set down the Geiger counter as close as they can get because it was reaching dangerous levels to even approach the lake to measure it. And these are just open-air lakes that are still in this area, this still-operating facility. Ugh, ridiculous. Okay. Anything else you want to cover before we wrap up? No, I think, we've, I think we've done enough, and I hope you'll appreciate that I tried to keep myself to a much more uh, prompt period of time in that in that Wikipedia spiral. You did. Uh, you did. <laughs> much better this week. Kept it general. Right. <laughs> cool. Thanks, everybody, for listening. This has been our, our episode four coverage of hbo's chernobyl we'll do episode five next week which is the end of the miniseries and we'll wrap up and then we'll probably have a conversation about what we're doing next um check out whiskey on the weekends we as i mentioned at the top uh putting out a new pod every friday and then check out mangum reads spencer anything else you want to say no looking forward to wrapping this up and always a pleasure man yeah enjoyed it thanks everybody see you